in your Bibles with me to Colossians. Get to return again to this glorious book. And in chapter 2, we're going to see some wonderful depth, both to the grace of God that we heard in Sunday school, and I think paralleling, coinciding very well with what Pastor Emilio shared with us, who we are as members of the body of Christ. So Colossians chapter 2, we're going to go back and just start in verse 9 and read down through verse 12. And today's message will cover verses 11 and 12. The Word of God says to us, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Let's pray one more time. Father, we look to you. We look to your word We ask, Father, for the means of your grace, all the necessary fullness of your grace, to write these truths, to empower this voice, and write these truths, Father, upon our hearts to change our lives, to transform us, to mature us in Christ, and, Lord, to unite us even more so as your body as a family of believers. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Continuing on in this section of Colossians from our last time together, we began to look at the sufficiency found only in Christ, and particularly in two aspects. The magnificence and power of the hypostatic union in the God-man Jesus Christ, the fullness of deity veiled in the fullness of human flesh, and the introduction of the power of God that brings about our union in him, in Christ. And it is through the discovery, the the understanding by faith in these scriptures of what is revealed to us about the fullness that is found in Christ And also the call issued forth to these Colossians and to all believers who walk in him, to be built up in him. We come now to see in today's study the power behind our being united in him. That this is one of the underlying and critical themes in Colossians. And such is this theme of our union in him that it carries a divinely wrought power that when brought to bear upon our souls each day in our remembrance, in our meditation, in our prayer, in our daily fellowship with the Lord's Spirit, as we walk each day in his fullness, that it will so transform our hearts to not only have within us and set before us the truth, the, the capital truth of Christ, but also the standard, capital S standard of the person and work of Christ, 
but it will also enable us to more effectively and quickly identify deceptive teachings of any of the many gospel deviations and perversions that surround us. And with this to also enable us and be ready to encounter, to engage lost souls in need of rescue, of carrying forth and issuing forth that same mercy, that same love, that same grace in the proclamation of the power that we have received. This was Paul's purpose in writing this letter. So when we think, when we consider and contemplate our union with Christ, or when we think in general terms of union, we need to always keep before us three great scriptural unions because of their importance and power. And if we keep these in mind, we'll have a greater, not only appreciation, but a greater understanding of the breadth and depth of the gospel of Christ. We also must be very careful that we don't see these or consider these unions as just mere improvements upon our lives or something we're able to add on to ourselves to make this life more enjoyable or more fulfilling or easier. No, these unions are wrought with a foreign power, a divine holy power set so very far apart from us as sinners, but that has been brought to us through the vastness of mercy and the condescension of Christ because of his love. These unions reveal to us the grace of God. Our first union, the first union we look at, is the eternal union. This refers to the Father's election of his people, which means we must go back beyond the realms of time before the creation and foundation of the world where we realize and contemplate God the Father foreseeing humanity in its fallen state And in his eternal state, there is God electing, God the Father choosing a people for himself in Christ before the foundation of the world. This is the eternal union. Secondly, there is a historical union, which goes back again to when the Father chose his people in Christ before the foundation of the world. He gave them to Christ. He gave them to his Son. The Son willingly, lovingly submitted to the Father's will, willingly coming and uniting himself to his people through the means of their humanity, taking on the likeness of his creatures in their flesh, in body, in soul. He became one with us, like us in our humanity. It was in the same likeness of our humanity that Jesus Christ on behalf of those whom the Father had given to him, lived a perfect life of obedience under the law in complete fulfillment of the law, then dying the only substitutionary and suitable death upon the cross, who was laid in the tomb and who rose again to be seated in resplendent glory with the Father, making intercession on behalf of all those whom the Father has given to him. And then thirdly, having returned to glory, thirdly, the Son, the Father, they send forth the Holy Spirit to fulfill this mystical union. It is the Holy Spirit who enters the hearts and lives of those who the Father has given to the Son before the foundation of the world, all those for whom the Son 
lived and loved and died for, the Son now sends forth the Holy Spirit to enter into their hearts, thereby uniting them with Christ. So we see there is an eternal union. There is a glorious union where the Father is central, and this is the Trinitarian union. There is a historical union with the Son. There is a mystical, spiritual union, the Holy Spirit, whereby he enters in, making us one and uniting us with the Lord Jesus, where we are now, we have become beneficiaries of all that the Lord Jesus has done on our behalf. All grace has been given to us from the Father by virtue of our union with the Son. And now in our passage for today, Paul is is continuing this theme, this reality of our union, of who and what has brought about our, our incorporation, our being brought in and included as part of the whole with each believer being filled in him. Paul used a positive metaphor back in verse 10 of those who are in Christ are now made full and made to share in his completeness. And now in these next two verses, Paul is going to further elaborate and further expound upon this fullness of Christ by joining verse 11 back to verse 10 with the use of of Kai and. However, Paul begins with this Interesting and maybe unusual metaphor, negative metaphor, which may not be expected. Verse 11 again. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. But this causes us Maybe not you, it did me. It causes us to stop and ask a couple questions. Maybe a reminder for all of us. Why did God institute circumcision? And secondly, why would Paul suddenly introduce into this discourse on our unity in Christ? Well, to answer the first question of why God instituted circumcision and to consider it in the context of this letter, we need to look at three aspects of circumcision. Why was it given? The scripture tells us it was given as a sign, as a seal, and as a symbol. And it is in this text for a purpose, so we are going to examine this very carefully. First, circumcision is a sign, a sign of God's covenant that was instituted with the great patriarch Abraham back in Genesis 9 chapter 17, verse 11 specifically, and it was done because God had made a covenant promise to Abraham that in his seed, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And in this covenant and in this promise made by God to Abraham, he gave Abraham a sign, a visible reminder of this promise a visible reminder of the covenant that God made on his behalf and his seed. Not simply a visible reminder of a promise, but a sign that is also a vivid declaration that God is faithful to fulfill his promise and his covenant, and that God's omnipotence was fully at work to ensure the fulfillment of this promise. This is powerful. We see this too with Noah, the sign of the bow in the cloud. 
The promise given to Noah that he would never destroy the earth by water. We see this promise, this sign among us today. How many of you wear a wedding ring? This is a sign of a covenant before God that we will love our wives, that we will serve them and nurture them in the word. Second aspect of circumcision, that it is given as a seal. It is a seal of Abraham's righteousness. And we see this clearly in Romans 4. If you would turn there, Romans chapter 4, I want to read several verses here. This is where Paul is taking on the Jewish thought that they were simply blessed because they carry this outward sign of circumcision. But Paul's talking about Abraham's justification by faith and not of works. But more importantly, when Abraham was justified in relation to the sign and the seal. So Romans chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. And Paul's talking here about justification by faith. He says, Is this blessing of justification by faith then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. While uncircumcised, Abraham received this credit from God as righteousness because of faith, given by God in Genesis 15, But the seal of this righteousness isn't given through the institution of circumcision until later in Genesis 17. It's a great purpose as a reminder of God and what he alone has done. There's no significance in it of itself. It is a useless rite. It's an unprofitable tradition. It carries no special mystical significance or any spiritual superiority as these false teachers in Colossae attempted to promote. It declares to the hearer the need to be righteous in the sight of God. Our third purpose is, is that circumcision was given as a symbol of spiritual renewal. Moses declares this to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. He says, Circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. And later in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel both testified vehemently warning of the need for spiritual renewal through the use of the meaning of this physical symbol. Jeremiah cries out, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it, 
because of the evil of your deeds. And Ezekiel, very much the same in 44, Ezekiel 44 verse 9, Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. The external physical act of circumcision was simply a symbol that directed, directly pointed to the need of spiritual circumcision, spiritual re- renewal. This is identified as the need of the cutting off of the flesh. And what does this flesh signify in Scripture? Paul tells us clearly in several places, Romans 7 being one of them, that this is the body of this death. It is the corrupted humanity that we all bear. It is the flesh that contains the law of sin. We know it began back in the garden when our federal head and Eve disobeyed God and at the moment of plunging themselves into the depths of sin, their body and soul and heart became corrupt. They became fallen in human nature. Their minds were darkened. Their hearts hardened and their wills enslaved. And from them, this same sinful corruption and fallen human nature is passed down from generation to generation to all men, women, and children, even to everyone in this very room. So we can see that this act of physical circumcision is what points to the cause of our depravity and our sin and how this is passed on and is present in our lives. But even greater reality is that this act reveals that now something far more radical far more powerful must take place here. A much greater spiritual surgery, if you will, is needed. Not just the removal of human flesh. Paul is not talking about just removing an extremity, but the removal of fallen human nature, a dealing with the heart of man, as he says, a circumcision made without hands, This is the paramount work. This is the powerful work done on our behalf by one outside of ourselves, by one greater than ourselves. It cannot be accomplished by the mere work of human hands upon the physical body. For we must come to see and continue to see that this circumcision made with hands and the circumcision made without hands both have Christ as their sole subject. The sign, the seal, the symbol are a mere shadow, the antitype pointing to the greater reality of heart renewal and its source of power, its substance of reality that is found only in Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit. So that is our introduction. We've looked into the glorious united work of the triune God on our behalf and introduced our union in Christ Hopefully we've gained a further understanding as to why God has instituted circumcision. And now we can return to verse 11 and begin our study. As we examine further this circumcision in Christ that is needed, that all need, and that believers in Christ have experienced. So we're continuing this message under the same theme, part two of the sufficiency of Christ. 
And looking at verses 11 and 12 today, we're going to look at two headings. First, the circumcision of Christ in in, in verse 11 and the effective work of Christ's circumcision in verse 12. In verse 11, Paul gives us three insights into this circumcision of Christ. And he uses very nicely, very organized, three prepositional phrases, so it makes the outline very simple. First, in him, prepositional phrase, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. The reality that physical circumcision is surgery, so is spiritual circumcision a surgery, a, a removal a cutting off around, but rather than an operation performed by man, it is only to be completed by the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. This is what Paul means by a circumcision made without hands, one that is spiritual in its fullest essence and fulfillment. It fully asserts that God himself, through his Spirit, is the chief surgeon, and the one who alone can and must do the work on the heart of man And Paul is reminding these saints and us that this is the work that had already been accomplished in fullness for those who are united in Christ and as the promise to all those who would yet believe. This is seen as the fulfillment of God's promises made back in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, which we read earlier, and are now fulfilled only in and through Christ. Christ makes this very clear himself in his late night encounter with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, where he says to him, Nicodemus being perplexed about spiritual truths and wanting to understand, Christ says to him that unless you are born again and born of the water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And what Christ is saying here by way of comparison is describing both physical and spiritual birth. But looking deeper, he is saying that even for all of us, one thing that we all share in common is that our, in our physical birth, none of us had any say. We had no control, no effective means to determine by whom, where, when, or how. It was according to God's appointed time that we were created. The very same truth holds for us in this radical circumcision, this spiritual surgery. It is performed by the Holy Spirit. We do not work towards this, nor is it something we can somehow attain in our own effort and strength, and nor can we enter into it by our own will. Just as the wind blows, Christ says, where it wishes, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It is only by the mysterious working of the Holy Spirit. And the work of the Spirit is how Paul identifies for us who the true Jew is. In Romans 2.29, he says, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, not by the letter of the law, for the law cannot save us. And his praise is not from men. It's not something we have accomplished or we can say, Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. But it is only from God. The second detail, the second prepositional phrase is in the removal of the body of the flesh. The circumcision of Christ is that it is enacted upon sinful human nature. 
A circumcision that has to be and is for the Colossians performed by the work and power of the Holy Spirit himself. And it is accomplished by removal of the body of flesh, of the flesh. As I said a minute ago, Paul's not speaking here of flesh as meaning our physical bodies. Not the removal of a deficient or defective part of an external feature or extremities. No, Paul is talking specifically about our fallen human nature, our corrupt, sinful nature. And it speaks to all, to all who have a serious problem. We all have this problem. We all share in this great deficiency because we were all born dead, spiritually dead to God, with our minds completely darkened to scriptural, biblical truth. And contrary to all scriptural truth, man is not advancing We are not developing and improving and becoming righteous. Much less are we better because of our technological advances in whatever sector of industry. Whatever solution we're trying, attempting to improve upon, what anomaly we hope to resolve or eradicate that's due to our fallen nature, we're all the same as we ever have been since sin entered the world with hearts that have been hardened our necks stiffened against God, where no one seeks after God, no one is righteous, no one understands. All have turned aside with no fear of God before their eyes. Where our wills are free, only within the realm of the bondage that we are under because of the sin and the darkness of our hearts. This is the condition of the uncircumcised heart before the spiritual work of God is enacted upon it. And brothers and sisters, those who are in Christ, this is where we were. This is who we were. And those outside of Christ, this is where you remain until you see and respond and submit and cry out to the Lord for his help. The wrath of God abides upon you right now, this very moment. The very wrath of God abides upon you right now. So the object of the Spirit's radical surgery is the very fall in human nature, the darkened mind. And what does the Spirit do? Oh, glorious Spirit, He brings light. He sheds illumination where light, His light is brought about to shine out of darkness. And what formerly made no sense to us at all, what could not even bring a care in the world, What was even considered foolish, God has now by his spirit, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Whereby the surgical work of the spirit is to lift the veil that is over the fallen heart of man to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What formerly was despised, what was foolishness in our fallen state, now becomes the very solid foundation for life, turning the affections of our heart, turning us from sin and darkness to the light and life and love of God. And where our wills are radically set free from the bondage and enslavement to sin, where the resistant, unyielding heart willfully comes to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, 
turning to Christ alone, forsaking and leaving behind, shedding its grip and entanglements of sin, to walk and live by faith in the Spirit, now knowing God and being known by God, surgical work of the Holy Spirit brings us into eternal life. And now we come to the third insight into the circumcision of Christ. Not only is this circumcision performed by the Holy Spirit, and not only is it performed on the fallen human nature, the sinful heart, but it is performed through and by our union with Christ. So what is or or what does this circumcision of Christ consist of? Is Paul speaking of the physical act that was performed on Christ when he was eight days old and taken to, by Mary and Joseph to the temple? Or is it just a circumcision that Christ performs? No, Paul is referring to circumcision here as a metaphor for Christ's death, but not just his death. It includes his death, his burial and resurrection because it involved the necessary sacrifice of his entire body. Not just a ceremonial piece of flesh, but the circumcision that especially belongs to Christ alone. It is a spiritual circumcision of his providing. This is grace that is only realized and enjoyed in fellowship with him. Because it is the only means that is fully affected upon the fallen hearts of man, whereby we are made one in union with him. It is only through faith in Christ alone, in his work alone, by grace alone, on our behalf, that we are then made of the true circumcision, where we are granted the possession of a heavenly inheritance. And this, too, is Christ. We must also be careful to note that in understanding the circumcision of Christ as his death, as seeing his body stripped off in his death and being buried and raised, again, is not a synonym for baptism or baptismal regeneration. But this brings us to our second heading to look further into what this circumcision of Christ looks like. What all does it mean? What is its effect? Number two, the effective work of Christ's circumcision. This is where we begin to unfold the fullness of it, where it is brought into fruition of the heart, bringing life to the born-again sinner. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So the circumcision of Christ is his death, It is his burial, it is his resurrection, and the Holy Spirit of God effects this radical surgery upon the heart, fallen heart of man by the circumcision of Christ. That is, by making us one with Christ so that his death, burial, resurrection becomes ours. It becomes ours legally. We are with him in baptism, baptismo, immersed into his death and burial. And because I am made one with Christ means that his death becomes my death. His burial becomes my burial. His resurrection life becomes my resurrection life legally, meaning his payment for my sin on Calvary's cross is now counted to my account 
because I am now made one with him. Glorious salvation. And not only am I, but all believers are made one legally in his death, burial, and resurrection. But we are now also made virtually in effect one in his death, burial, and resurrection. This is a very powerful reality to understand and believe that all that I was in Adam, that sinful old man that I was, was crucified with Christ, was buried with Christ, it was laid in the tomb, and I have been raised to a newness of life in Christ by the virtue of the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ in me, in us. This is what it means to be circumcised in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is only made possible to us and for us through spiritual surgery by the Spirit of God. It is a surgery only God can perform on sinful human nature. And it is a surgery that is performed through our union with Christ. So why does Paul use this this past participle of having been buried with him in baptism? Is he saying that water baptism is necessary for regeneration, or is he attempting to replace circumcision with baptism? Neither is the case. This is not a verse to support baptismal regeneration, and nor is it a case for baptism now replacing the sign of circumcision as the means of establishing someone within the true covenant of God. If you want to quickly turn over to 1 Corinthians 12, I just want to read one verse there. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, Paul says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Paul is again here speaking of Spirit speaking of the Spirit's work, his exclusive surgical work of what is now described as baptizing us into one body, and that being being brought into the body of Christ and the spiritual baptism pictures our union with Christ. It is what takes place at salvation by both an intellectual means of understanding the gospel that has been preached, and all of this by the Spirit's work alone that does the circumcising work of transforming the fallen heart. Our burial in salvation is done without hands, just as the spiritual circumcision is done without hands upon the heart. Our sacrament of baptism, where we are immersed in water or by whatever means may be available, is merely the outward testimony and proclamation of what has happened to us spiritually. There is no likeness between immersion into water and the mode of burial of the dead. The sacrament of baptism derives its efficacy not from the water or the convert's token burial in it, but from and only the saving act of Christ and the regenerating work of God, producing that faith union with the risen Lord, of which the sacrament is only, again, a sign and a seal. And this is precisely what Paul had in mind in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. He says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? 
Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. As we see from the end of this verse, death and burial is not the final state, but this is the transition period. It's also that the sinner is raised out of death, united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, and from this purely spiritual reality begins exercising that belief in God, that newness of communion, that walking and being justified and forgiven. He obtains in this his, his legal life. He is fully exempted, fully acquitted from the penalty of the law, and the fierceness of God's wrath, and now enters into that life of sanctification and is endowed with spiritual life, leading to the eternal reward, ultimately, that is with Christ himself in heaven. This is the reality of having been made complete and united in Christ through his spiritual circumcision of our hearts and being brought into the newness of his life. Again, I want to look back just again in Romans 6 with Paul where he continues. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Amen. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing, knowing, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, Even so, brothers and sisters, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Well, let me close by emphasizing again that this spiritual transformation for the believer can only be achieved by grace through faith in the working of God. For a sinner who hears the gospel of truth is made the recipient of God's energy, God's active power, That very same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead and through salvation in Christ's death and burial will also be raised with him. For if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You shall enter into this spiritual union with Christ and his fullness. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the richness that is ours in Christ. Thank you for the spiritual, surgical, mystical work that your Holy Spirit has done upon brothers and sisters in this body. Father, may we flourish in this, in the reality that we have been freed from sin and given resurrection life to no longer walk according to the flesh, to no longer walk as according to the world but to live in your power, to seek your power, to enjoy your power, Father, because we are absolutely weak and needy. 
So, Father, I pray that you would bear these truths upon our heart. Write them, O Lord. Inscribe them upon our hearts. Let us not forget them quickly. O God, keep the enemy from stealing these truths from our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.